Hi, Happy New Year 2021 to you. I'm super excited to bring to you the new episode of Planet Impact podcast. This episode was originally recorded in May 2019 when I was in Singapore. This is going to be part 1 of the two episodes. In the first part, we're going to discuss the foundation work of our today's guest and in the second part, we're going to talk about her new book, Beyond the Fields. I'm sure you're going to love her story. Today, we are going to share the story of one of the most loving, generous, one of the kindest and most inspiring people I've ever met. I first met her when I was interning in Ashoka in Singapore and instantly she was very kind and welcoming to this idea of this podcast. And fun fact, she's the first person that I ever recorded this podcast 2 years ago today i have finally have the opportunity to publish it she is the founder of caravan crafts foundation a pakistan based ngo which is doing pioneering work in economic development focused on poverty elevation through the provision of business development and market led training for girls and women in pakistan welcome to planet impact a show about how non conformist social entrepreneurs are changing the world here's your host manthan shah Aisha, I don't care about your college or whatever's going on in that aspect. The only thing I know is that 
I'm not taking you in a regular history class when I think you can make it in the AP history and the AP English. So that's it from my side. I was furious. I said, no, I'm not going to go to that. You know, why should I study hard when nothing's going to come to me? What's the point of studying? You know, I'm going to go just going to go to a regular college in Lahore. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think once you start, somebody tells you that you can do better. There's always that, oh, I, you know, I still look back at that. And we went to the principal's office. It was an hour long discussion. And the principal gave us both time. And the teacher got his way. He he was just adamant. And I cannot thank him enough, Manthan, because I was being short-sighted. He saw something and he said, I'm not going to back down from this. If this girl has the potential to take AP classes and to get a good grade in them, well, I'm not going to let her shortchange herself. And I'm so grateful to him. I did graduate as a valedictorian, but in 12th grade, my professors advised me to just apply. I did apply a year late and I got a scholarship from Mount Holyoke College. It just was a turning point in my life because they were covering over 90% of my fees. And I was working there when the news of acceptance came and the exposure that I got at Mount Holyoke College, I think it was just a turning point in my life. I do owe it, I think, to this one teacher, Tethanar. And I must add, Mount Holyoke is quite a big deal. Like Yes, it is. 1800s, they were Ivy Leagues only for men. Yes. These colleges were made for women-centric or very liberal arts. Yeah, so they were the Seven Sisters College. Yeah. I went to Mount Holyoke. That was the year was 1992. The first semester, you have to take these 101 courses where it's an introduction. And I think I was sitting in a class. Uh, the professor was Kavita Kori and the class was in politics of South Asia. And I'm sitting in class and she's, you know, writing. She's got a whiteboard in front of her and she's writing all these words like third world, poverty, hunger. There was a list of diseases. And I'm looking at those words and I'm trying to relate to those words and I'm not being able to figure the connection. Because going back, like I said, um, I was in the American school simply because my mother was a teacher there and I, it was extremely privileged. We lived in our own sort of bubble. You know, we stayed inside school campus and then we had sports teams and then we had conventions and poverty. I'd never really, I had not experienced it and I hadn't seen it, even if it was around me. And I think it, as a teenager, one is sort of self-obsessed with one's own self. And when I saw these words being written out for me it was very like you know and Pakistan of course was up there with all the words and I was like what how what have I missed in this whole occasion why are we such a poor country and why were these countries being categorized as developing underdeveloped uh, developed and before I knew I had changed my major to international relations where I could take more subjects to find out more about it and by the time I was I think a junior, again, knew that in order to really find out the answer, I had to go back to Pakistan. So where everybody was getting ready for sort of, you know, their interviews and graduate schools. No, not that I look back, I think that my life would have been very different if I had applied to graduate school, if I had got tried to get a job there. Uh, but for me, that just the question that why are so many millions of people living in such abject purity? I have to get the answer. I think it was just too big to ignore. I went back to Pakistan with that intention. Yeah, I wanted to ask, there was this incident of Shafia Bibi's case when you're in American school. Yeah. And that kind of translated into... In 1980s, before she went to the college, there was an incident in Pakistan that shaped her view of the world. And this also inspired her later for her book and her foundation. This this story gives a pulse of the state of South Asian Pakistan back in the 1980s. 
This was 1980, early 1980. So this is before you went to college. This is before I went to college. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting because although the incident happened in the 1980s, I sort of, I think I had packed it up and put it away in my mind, not really wanting to think yeah. about it in the yeah. teenage years. I don't know how one does that. These things come out to you later. But in short, what happened was in 1980s, a young blind girl, she was raped by her employer and her son. And because of the law of evidence... That means in Pakistan and Zia's regime, that was... A woman's verdict would only count as half to that of man. In the law of evidence, it was half. And for rape, actually, you had to have witnesses that, oh, to prove rape. But the fact that she was pregnant, it was evidence enough that she had had premarital sex. So there is a punishment for premarital sex. So although she couldn't prove that she'd been raped, it was like, well, she's sort of, you know, well, she's gone ahead and had sex. So she must be punished. And that just caused a storm. She was blind, you know, and she was a young girl, 13, 14 years of age and she was sent she was sort of she had a sentence for a jail term and lashings and I remember my mother saying that we have to go to this protest it was on the mall road and I remember standing that day standing with hundreds and thousands of other women and there was this energy and I remember how when a woman was just not backing down the police were there there was Lati charge and we were chanting that and we were demanding that you know Safiya Bibi sort of be released and I it's come back to me now that I've sort of written my novel Beyond the Fields but at that time I went I think I saw and then I sort of packed the incident in my mind yeah. and I didn't really think about it or about social justice I think Absolutely. because I think when I went to college the whole thing was you know like I said when I'm sitting in class it was again seeing that fact that oh there's so much poverty but why and I think it relates very well to the social justice point also that so many people do in not college, have access to she justice. took international relations as her specialization and when she came back to Pakistan her family naturally wanted her to lead a more comfortable life while working in a corporate or banking sector. However, she decided to stick with the non-profit sector. And my father especially, I think, couldn't understand that. What is this girl doing? She's come back from a great college. She can get into a great bank. She can have a good job. Why does she want to go back to the villages? You see, the whole reason for me for coming back to Pakistan was that I had to see poverty. I had to experience it. I had to feel it. Be able to figure out in my head why this is happening. And I worked with a few non-profit organizations. And honestly, I was disillusioned. I was in mid-20s or yeah. early 20s. And I couldn't figure out how me sitting in an air-conditioned room the whole day working on a research report is changing any woman's life out there. I could not see the impact, the correlation. The, I felt that maybe I'm wasting my time. Maybe its problem is bigger than what I can do. So, you know, let's just do an MBA and then join the corporate sector. And I remember meeting Roshane Zafar, who's now the president of Kasha Foundation, which yeah. is largest microfinance organization in Pakistan. Brilliant lady. Yeah. So she was giving a speech in your college? And- no, no. We met at a wedding. Oh. Yeah, we met at a <laughs> wedding and we started talking and she started, you know, I was telling her I'd worked and I, I hadn't found sort of something to go on and I, I had just been admitted into their lumps and she said, well, I have just started microfinance organization followed on the principles of Grameen Bank and we've just launched it and we are expanding and this is what we do. And what she talked about what she was doing. It's like somebody has suddenly, you know, gone inside and said exactly that this is what I want to do. Oh my God, she's got it. And for a moment, I was I want to join her right now. But I think I knew that, okay, I was in too far into Lums to back out. And I'm so glad I didn't. But the two years I was at Lums, I kept sort of pulse on what Kashif was doing, where they were going, did my projects sort of related to that. Everything I was doing, I think I knew that as soon as I graduate, I want to go and join the yeah. join Kasha. And everybody was horrified again. 
<laughs> because you see, after an MBA like this, you go to multinationals, you go to banks, you do not go and join a nonprofit organization. I think my class was mad at me because there is an average salary of each yeah. MBA class graduates at, and that's the point of honor. And I think I was the outlier, so I think I brought them down so badly. <laughs> but you know, Mantin, that was such an important learning because I realized later on that why does the MBA only have to be for people who want to, you know, make big money? Everything that I learned in MBA. I translated it down almost like a guidebook for how village women can understand the business principles in their own language. So now that I look back, it makes complete sense. But at that time, of course, there was a big UN cry because there were no banks and there were no multinationals. I did, you know, did intern at a multinational uh, at the summer because my parents were like, this is ridiculous. You don't even know what you're giving up. But again, sitting in that air-conditioned office, you know, going for halwa puri in the lunch breaks, it just, I was not, it didn't stir me. I, there was no purpose. There was no meaning. She and started working at Kashya Foundation, which gives microfinance loans to women. And Miss Aisha worked for the enterprise development sector of this foundation, which later laid roots for her, her own Caravan Foundation. This was in um, 1998. And because it was an enterprise development, that's what that's where the seeds of Caravan took place. Mm-hmm. So Kashyap provides microfinance services to women. But the part I was doing, the enterprise development, was looking at, well, what else? How can we give these women business opportunities? How can we connect them to the markets or trainings? From the very start, my heart was on that. And then another very, very defining moment. Uh, I think it was my second year of training. So before I joined Kashyap, uh, we did go to uh, Bangladesh to visit Grameen. We were... You know, we lived with the poor in the villages as they lived. And I think that taught me a lot about poverty and what goes through, you know, what, how the poor are and how they think. So rather than coming to them as someone from the outside, you need to understand it internally. A lot not being said. You know, I remember I joined Kashyaf. This was my second year of training. I thought I was pretty good at training. I, you know, by that time, I went to this village and, you know, there was this group of eight women. Right. And I was talking about gender empowerment and I had my pins to do exercises and we play Chinese whisper and we sort of had these diagrams and I had everything. And I remember the eight women were sort of, you know, they were they were focused, but let's say 80 percent. I had 80 percent of their attention, really not 20 percent. They were looking sort of like they had other stuff to do. And there was this old woman who kept sitting at the back and who didn't join in the training despite our efforts. So, you know, please come and join the training. She said, no, I'm just going to watch. But anyway, I went through the training and everybody sort of... applause and I was like okay you know but and then you know this old woman said she'll come to me come here and then she said uh, she said Betty and you know basically I said it in Odu she said it in Punjabi which basically means but you think that if we didn't have the money we would not be able to take these decisions or think like this ourselves or take the right decisions a lot of my training had been like you know you should save you should spend on your uh, education of your children you know and I was just stumped because she was right why was I assuming that she and other mothers and other women were any different from those who are told, isn't this a woman's or a mother's first instinct that they have this, that they will spend on the health and the education? She was right. There was no money. The problem was not about telling, training them about these issues. The problem was that these communities are isolated and they do not have access and they do not have ideas on how to earn money. And I think, you know, I talked about coming back to Pakistan to find a solution and solution in my mind about how one could address poverty. And this was it. Unless it's a flow of capital, not from these communities, but to these communities and with capital, 
there's a flow of ideas and opportunities, there's these communities will not be able to improve their lot. And we will stuck, still be stuck. And that's where I think the idea of Karwan took root. And, you know, we I've never, ever looked back. Within Kashif, the program grew immensely. We worked with organizations like Baby Gap, who had come into Pakistan, you know, wanting to improve their image and work with Hamd embellishers. You know, our quality of embroidery was rated like 99%. But it was still challenging to get the women to work together on time. But I knew that there was potential there. If product made by this woman can go to a market like the US, then there is potential there without any training. We hadn't trained them. We just taught them a few quality characteristics. And I'll give you an example, Manthan. You know, so many of our market vendors, when they see a product, they say, oh my God, this is made by a village woman. Oh, so bad. You know, look at this. Loose stitches, loose embroidery and so many stains. And the problem is not that the woman can't do better. The problem is how do you define the word quality? And this is where my MBA came in. So now if you define quality for a wholesale market, right? It's different because you're doing mass production. So what you get, at let's say a store like Target is going to be very different than what you get at a store like Harrods. Both are different levels of quality. You can't expect the village woman to know what kind of quality I should produce by herself. So you have to train her. You have to define the characteristics that make quality up. And then you have to tell her, well, quality means five stitches per inch or quality means three stitches per inch. Okay. Quality means that you do not use this ink to trace because it's not going to, the stains are not going to go. You will have to use a more expensive ink. But in some markets, the stains really don't matter because you're getting the garment so cheap. So, you know, they don't mind the faded stains of the tracing on the back on the back of the garment or the inside inside of the garment. So that's what Carvan was all you know, was about Carvan was officially founded in 2004 um, with a mission to empower women through poverty alleviation, through creating business opportunities, connecting them to the markets and making networks accessible to them. So we, like I said, we were working with Baby Gap. We were doing really well. We started working with a lot of textiles company. And then September 11th happened. And suddenly we found that nobody wanted to do business with Pakistan anymore. But for us, that meant the village woman wouldn't have worked. So we set up a shops and, you know, this was early 2000. We set up a series of shops where we had products made by the village woman. You know, the shops did fairly well from about, for about five years. And they were, I don't think we would have discontinued them until an organization called MEDA, MEDA, which is a Canadian-based organization, approached us and t- talked to us about how we were working. And, you know, they, they have a very interesting and innovative approach called value chain development. To me, it makes such complete sense in one, including the poor in the markets and two, not making them dependent on you. And I think our intentions in opening the shop were that, well, women will get income, but that's short term. In the long term, there would have always been a conflict of interest between us who had to pay for the store costs, the rent, the salaries and their earnings. Two, how are we improving their learning, improving, enhancing their learning? And three, they would always be dependent on us. Nida, when they came to us and told us about this approach, I think that's where Carvan changed itself. We embraced the value chain methodology, value chain development methodology. And briefly, what it sort of entails is that in the program, you study industries that are growing within the economy and that have a potential to absorb thousands and thousands of poor women who, which will improve the size of the, uh, of the industry or which will improve value or in some way add value to, uh, the work of bigger businesses in the community. And to give you an example, we started to work with Mira in 2008 in the hand embellishments industry, which is any embroidery, crochet work, beading 
that, you know, women do. And it's something women do fairly well at home. And our project was how we had to connect 10,000 women to market players. Market players are your wholesalers, your retailers, your boutiques, anybody who will be able to purchase from them. And four years were full of learning, challenges, realizations, mistakes, but also solutions. Mm. And at the end of the project, I can, you know, I can tell you that we had, more, we had, we had had about 12,000 women connected. Not only that, the spill-off, they were role models. They were relationships. Impact of Caravan Foundation has been tremendous. This started with a mission to enable women in low-income communities across Pakistan to successfully pursue decent livelihoods. In 2003, they had only 300 women in 2006, that increased to 2,500 women across Pakistan. In 2019, when we recorded this podcast, they were present in 15,000 villages and helping 30,000 women to live a decent life and own financial independence. For me, I did have to build my team up one by one. What you were looking for, Manthan, in that, you can learn everything on the job except, you know, the attitude. I was looking for people with the right attitude who have a problem with the way things are, who do not think that just because they have more money or they're better dressed are in any way better than any person in the village who does not have money or who's not so well-dressed, who understand the mentality of the poor and who are impassioned by change when they see village women doing better and earning money the rest really you can you know you can train anyone to do any you know anything so what do you think what next i i really catered to singapore in 2013 for me Carvan was actually my first child so uh, you know leaving taking that decision and once i'd come back to pakistan i also didn't want to ever i had decided i had such a big problem with change i decided i didn't want to leave but the decision to leave came partly because there was a series of blasts going on my child was going to school and blasts that would happen were too near the areas so every sort of week there would be a chat that are we sending the children to school and I think that's when life sort of just grips you and I was like I can't I cannot go to work knowing that my child is in school and there might be a blast and something might happen it really it just completely leaves you cold and hard and gripped from inside when my husband received a job offer I think it tore me up from inside but I said okay let's go let's let's take it up for Carvan my only prayer was you know I always just pray that please just let be a better decision for Karman to come too far. And I'm so proud to say that it has been. I think person who funds the organization takes it for, takes it to a certain point. At one point, they have to do a complete audit of themselves. How far have I taken the organization? Are the systems in place to take the organization to the next level? You know, and if you are still leading the organization until you have to do a 360 audit, what was done at the time I left and the new CEO was hired, it just doesn't, you just, you do not envision the next 20, 30 years of change. So when the new CEO came in, you know, there was new energy. There was new thought. There was no impetuous. There was no new movement. And the organization is doing extremely well. So I've never, ever regretted, thank God, the fact that because of me, you know, the foundation Okay, so this brings us to the conclusion of the first part of this podcast. This was about Miss Aisha Baki's journey in Pakistan to the United States, then coming back to Pakistan, starting caravan crafts and changing lives of tens of thousands of women across Pakistan. In the next episode, we will know about her journey as an author and we'll also have an exciting lightning round. Looking forward to seeing you there.